1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, this is Eric LeMay, a host on the New Books Network. Today, I interview Bob Falconer about his new book, The Others Within Us, Internal Family Systems, Porous Mind, and Spirit Possession. Falconer's book is the result of a decade-long journey to understand a phenomenon that raises questions not only about how we as a contemporary Western culture, understand ourselves, it's also a challenge to the limits of how we understand the models of self and mind that we assume to be true. In The Others Within Us, Falconer offers a paradigm-shifting vision of what it means to be human and how therapists who work within the model of internal family systems can help to relieve human suffering. Falconer offers both a methodology for therapists as well as an intellectual and transcultural history of the farther reaches of our inner worlds. Falconer himself is a longtime practitioner and trainer of Internal Family Systems, or IFS, and has previously co-written a book with the founder of the IFS model, Richard Schwartz, entitled Many Minds, One Self. Enjoy my conversation with Bob Falconer. Bob Falconer, welcome to the New Books Network. Good to be here. Yeah, so you have a new book. It's a big title, The Others Within Us, Internal Family Systems, Porous Mind, and Spirit Possession. And I'm very excited to talk to you about it today. Um, And it is vast and intricate. And as you write in the book, 10 years of labor and obviously a labor of love. Um, And so I was thinking before our interview about all the different ways we could approach it. And I thought, maybe here's a good one to start. Um, you state in in the book that your main goal with the book is a pragmatic one, um, and that's to end and lessen human suffering. And so I'm mm-hmm. wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the, the project of the book with that in mind, because it's it's such a, a laudable aim in the end, right? It's Your book is an intellectual project. It's a spiritual project. It's a historical work. It's an academic work. It's a work that's trying to think outside of academia, but here's this goal at the center of it. And, and it's also the center of your work, which is how can we lessen human suffering? Mm-hmm.
2: You know, that, that, ag- that radical pragmatism actually comes from William James, uh, you know, and if you go far enough along the lines of pragmatism, they go all the way to whatever works is real. <laughs> I don't go quite that far. But in a getting into this field, um, there are all these theories and fascinating subjects. And, you know, any one of them could be lifetimes of work to try and find out what's really going on here. And I decided very early on, I need to put binders on. <laughs> and just focus what's going to help the person in front of me who's suffering and try as much as I could not too successfully to not go down all those fascinating side trails you know and I did I went into the anthropology and history and all of that but I basically that was my focus and I came to this work um, kicking and screaming against my will (laughs) I wanted to ignore this stuff. It's so weird and upsetting to think that things, forces, beings, whatever you want to call them, can get into our mind and have a big impact. That went against everything I'd been trained in. And there was, uh, and I, you know, I was doing pretty well, trauma-oriented therapy, been doing it for 30 years, sort of felt I understood things fairly well. And then this case came along that, clearly was one of these unattached burdens. And I, I could not ignore it.
0: I, I definitely want to circle back to that case. Um, I want to stick for a little bit while longer with, with just the radical pragmatism. And also at this point, I can imagine some listeners having similar reactions to that that prior self that you talked about of like, I, I don't know, where are we? We're talking about, you know, did did Eric actually say spirit possession in the subtitle of the book? Yes, yes, he did. <laughs> so I'm wondering if you could tell us a story that you relate in the book about a Hungarian physician named Ign- Ignat Simmelweis. Right.
2: Um, yeah. I
0: think that that story is very instructive. Yeah.
2: Dr. Semmelweis died in about 1860, and he was an obstetrician gynecologist. And when he was practicing, many or most of the mothers and infants who went into a hospital to deliver died of childbed fever. And he discovered by mistake that if he washed his hands with chlorine until they were slippery between each patient, he had almost no childbed fever on his wards. He knew this would not be a popular idea. There was no theory to explain it at the time. So he didn't talk about it, but his students started bragging about him. And then he couldn't, you know, he couldn't pretend it wasn't happening. So he said, yeah, this is what's happening. And the other doctors went, what do you mean? You're telling us we're making our patients sick with our hands. And they used to come up from uh, dissecting corpses and directly to the patients and not wash their hands. So anyway, he was hounded, ridiculed, criticized, fired from his job, and then a few weeks later uh, institutionalized in a mental institution and shortly after that died of a beating at the hands of the guards. So <laughs> having an idea that's right prematurely can, can be very dangerous and our, the highest levels of our Western academic world have responded very poorly to new ideas. And it wasn't until, I don't know, 20, 30 years later that Lister came up with, you know, the bacteria and germ theory of disease that people accepted what he was doing.
0: Yeah, and in the yeah.
2: meantime, hundreds of thousands of women and children died.
0: hmm, mm-hmm. and, and if we have a listener still think, well, that was the 19th century, right? Um, I wonder if you'd all, also- so tell us about you you bring up this book is so rich you you tell us about the the history of the acceptance of post traumatic stress syndrome um in in the United States just very recently and that this was not a medical innovation, innovation that this resulted from a direct form of activism. Could you tell us a little bit about that
2: yeah the the medical profession the therapy therapy schools and all the major institutions, first of all, they rejected the idea that child sexual abuse was common and that it had bad effects, but also they rejected the idea of post-traumatic stress disorder in any form, vehemently, and they they called people who stood up for this all sorts of names. It was the Vietnam Veterans Rap Groups, who, you know, they knew this stuff was real because they were living with it. And they got, uh, and one psychiatrist, Robert Lifton, helped them organize. They didn't go to the academic institutions. They went to Washington, D.C. and lobbied extensively. And it's really hard for politicians to say no to veterans. You know, so that's how PTSD got in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. And I'm glad all the schools are, have accepted trauma as a major cause of psychological dysfunction. But part of me is a little galling. It would be nice if they said, gee, gang, we were so wrong. <laughs> Not so long ago, we were completely wrong. But I don't think that's ever going to happen.
0: Yeah, so a public apology would be nice. Would be, <laughs> um, yeah. And, and I wanted, just following this trailhead, um, bring in one more example, which is a, a central concern of your book: its internal family systems. And this was developed by um, by Richard Schwartz, who writes the introduction to your book, um, and. And he also describes internal family systems as developing from an evidence-based pragmatism of you know he was studying the data and trying to figure out how human beings work, how their minds work um, and out of that he came up with internal family systems and i I, I don't think we can assume that that folks who are listening know the internal family systems model and i've i've heard you give explanations of it and i'm wondering if you'd be willing to to do that so we have a sense of what's the model that you're working with and referencing throughout the book okay
2: um And this model also has been met with incredible resistance. Now it's unbelievably popular. It's all over the world. And I think the last time I checked, they have a waiting list of almost 20,000 people for the level one trainings. So it's really become incredibly popular. It's based on the idea that we are not a unified person. We're much more like a sports team. We're much more like a baseball team than a tennis player. We have all these different parts and that's a good thing it's like in an orchestra you don't want to homogenize the orchestra into one thing you want all the different instruments this is natural and good and uh there's some parts tend to be protectors other parts are exiles who carry tremendous pain and dick also discovered something else that he has later said is the core discovery that there's something he calls the self with a capital S, which is this core essence of people that cannot be dirtied or damaged in any way. And everyone, even the most severely traumatized people have this. And his his model of healing, the metaphor I like, it's like turning an internal civil war into a jazz band that plays together really, really well. We don't want to mush all those different parts together.
0: That's beautiful. That's beautiful. And we have a, an interview um, with Richard Schwartz. His friends call him Dick um, on the New Books Network that, that we can link to um, for a fuller explanation. But yeah, that's, that's a really beautiful way of thinking about healing. Um, and you, you have co-authored a book with Dick Schwartz about the model of mind that is internal family systems.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's not a new idea that we're, we're multi, our mind is basically multiple. Plato had an internal model of mind. You find it all over the world. And so I just gathered all that data and put it together for Dick. And we also found parallels to self in pretty much every major world religion.
0: Yeah. And, and I think it's, it's also important for people who might be new to internal family systems, um, to put out there that that it's not only become radically popular, you know, listing the twenty thousand people who are waiting to have a chance to do it, uh, many of which are already like yourself, established therapists who are folding this into their practice uh, and finding it helpful. But it's now also an evidence validated and evidence based practice um, that. Yeah, that studies have been done to show that it ends human suffering, that it helps people, um, and that it's now being accepted by insurance companies and uh, you know as a as a legitimate form of therapy. Does that sound right?
2: Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, it is evidence based, and also it's being used in a lot of other fields. Uh, uh, There are a whole bunch of mediators uh, who are using it. It's very effective in helping people solve uh, disputes like that. People are using it extensively in education now. So it's it's not just limited to the field of psychotherapy.
0: That's great. That's, well, and like any powerful and paradigm shifting idea, there are tremendous implications that come with it. Um, and that's one we way we're seeing it play out. And I think one way that I think about your book is that you're, you're looking at those discoveries of IFS and seeing where they lead. Um, And like you said, when we first started off, like the evidence often takes you in places that you're not initially thinking you want to (laughs) go. Yeah,
2: definitely. And I've always sort of pushed the edge of whatever I was, whatever field I was in. And i for, you know, I think a lot of the IFS people are very uncomfortable with what they call unattached burdens or guides, and um, but that's that's where I've ended up specializing.
0: So this would be a good place to ask something like, what is an unattached burden or a guide? And and one of the things you do so well in the book is you show historical analogs and. Transcultural analogs and um, of mm-hmm. this phenomenon, but just if we could start off with, you know, here's the thing we're talking about. Okay,
2: IFS, as I said before, is this parts model, and very much of it is about establishing warm, loving, compassionate relationships between a person and all their different parts, including even the parts that seem really difficult. Suicidal parts. Suicidal parts are usually trying to protect the person. They're like the last line. They're the part that says, if the pain becomes absolutely unbearable, I'm here and I can end it. So we don't see those as the enemy at all. Every part has a good intention. There are no bad parts, including the alcoholic parts that drink and on and on and on. I could could spend weeks just talking about that. But when you go into some people's systems, there are some things that show up sometimes that have absolutely no good intention. They just want to destroy and annihilate the person. And we've come to realize these are not parts of a person's system. There's some foreign energy or some, well, we call them unattached burdens, but you know, you. I allow whatever metaphor the client likes to use about them that can get into people and they can cause a lot of trouble and we can help move them on. And there's one key, key rule here that because this is not like an exorcism or any of that, you know, yelling and screaming and fighting stuff. These things only get power in a person's system when parts of a person are scared of them. and When the person is no longer scared of them. They lose all power. And so the way we deal with them is to help the person find and connect to all the parts who are scared of it. And then then any then it's relatively easy to move the thing along and get it out of the person system. And a guide is a, is another kind of external energy, but it actually is offering guidance and wisdom and you know it's it's, it's a positive presence in people's
0: lives. Yeah, that's that's very helpful. Thank you for that. So, so you just talked about external energies, that these things come into the system. And again, I want to loop back to where we started, right, that your concern all along has been, I've noticed that this has occurred, and I'm looking for ways to solve the suffering that's, associated with them and this this model works yeah that's that's the place to start and then if we move backwards i could imagine some listeners ears perking up when you said external energies and so i wonder if we might go back to then the model part of it and ifs as we've talked about it has this idea of of, of a multiple multiple minded, multiple part of itself, it's right. There's also this this notion that the mind, and this is in your subtitle, is porous in a way that's different from our default understanding of in in the kind of intellectual tradition in the West of the mind is like a a sealed discrete entity. Could you talk a little bit about what porosity in the mind means? Okay. This
2: this is an area that I think I go way beyond what Dick would approve of. So if anything sounds weird here, just go, oh, that's just Bob. (laughs) Don't don't blame Dick or IFS for it. But um, every living system is porous. You think of a cell, the membrane around the cell, lets stuff in and lets stuff out. If a system does not have a porous, semi-permeable membrane around it, it's dead. Why would our minds be any different? (laughs) And there's all sorts of, um, you know, traditions I could cite and do cite in the book to uh, substantiate this. Uh, Daniel Siegel's interpersonal neurobiology, the cognitive science of distributed cognition, uh, Gregory Bateson's system thinking mind and nature Unnecessary necessary unity and, and, and on and on and on there's, there's really massive evidence that this is the case. But I want to I just want to mention a, a study by Tanya Lorman, who I believe you've also interviewed at one point, And she was studying psychosis in San Mateo, California, Accra, Ghana, and Chennai, India. And she had approximately equal samples in those three places. And we spend way over a hundred times what either of those other two locations spend on the care of psychotic people. We get the worst results. (laughs) I mean, if we were, we should be over there studying what they do, right? But we're busy exporting our methods. That's another subject. Tanya came up. She, she tried to explain this and did a lot of interviews and, and she's really brilliant. And she said she thinks a major, major factor in the horrible results we get is what she called the Citadel Theory of Mind. That here in the West, we have this idea that our minds are private, they're contained, everything in it is ours, it's our private property, and it constitutes our identity. That looks really strong and powerful, like this great big fortress, but it's actually incredibly brittle and fragile. So when someone here in the West hears a voice, they shatter, they're destroyed. In Ghana, they have a cultural expectation that they will be able to communicate with nature. And sometimes they'll be able to communicate with spirits. So when they hear a voice, it's sort of okay. It's not a shattering experience. In Chennai, India, they had this expectation—a more what she called a sociocentric centric uh, view of the universe—and they sort of when they when someone there heard a voice, they'd say, "Oh, that's like my aunt. She always nagged, but she was well-intentioned." You know, so it that experience of something coming into them is not is not destructive in the same way it is here in the west. So this citadel theory of mind, this denial of our natural porosity actually makes us very very fragile.
0: Yeah. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. That's very clarifying. Okay, so let's let's see if I can I can sit myself in the role of the listener and say okay, if we take with with IFS the idea that the self is multiple and has multiple parts, um, and it's like this orchestra when it's functioning well, right? But there are these different. The self is made up of multiple entities, and if we can say with with Bob and you know Stanford anthropologist Tanya Lerman that, that the mind is a porous, is also porous rather than a citadel right then it makes sense that we could be in a situation where there are entities that have entered into our membrane of self and they become parts that don't belong there or that are, that are external energies is that right yeah yeah
2: let me just say let me just because I've been trying to explain this to rationalists who think I'm a a nut job and I've been living in California too long. (laughs) So I try and see what's vaguely acceptable to rationalists. And one way I've come to put this is that there is a basic biopsychological dynamic which is found in pretty much every culture we have records of and every era of history. That we have records of. And this biopsychological dynamic can have profound effects, good and bad. The metaphor usually used to describe this is spirit possession. But whatever the metaphor, this is a phenomena that's worthy of serious study.
0: That's great. We are on the New Books Network, which is predominantly academic books. So that's one of the reasons I'm saying, imagine an academic is asking these questions. Um, And and that's also the reason I wanted to start um, with that radically pragmatic goal of, you know, one of the reasons it's worthy of study is because it if you move forward with it, as you have done, it's ending human suffering, uh, and that is a good. Well, so could you take us back to that case that you said changed your life and maybe moved you um, from questioning some of these things to becoming curious about some of these things? Mm-hmm.
2: And I, I wanna say, this: pursuing this line of inquiry has been very disruptive to my life and has exposed me to a lot of ridicule and humor. Um, But also, it's been incredibly exciting. So back a little more than 10 years ago now, I think, I was being a program assistant. I was on staff of one of the IFS trainings. And one of my jobs was to run these little practice groups, which have three people in them. Somebody as doing the job of therapist, somebody being a client, somebody being an observer. And my job was to intervene, you know, and help the therapist do IFS as opposed to the other ways they'd known. And this woman who was the client appeared to have one of these things in her, what I thought might've been one of these things. It was a critic, which is everybody has an inner critic that I've ever met, but this one was just merciless and vicious and mean. And no matter how much the guy who was, acting as the therapist tried, he couldn't find a good intention. So I asked him, would it be okay if I took over the session? Uh, I don't think you've been trained in this area. And he said, please. (laughs) So I start working with her, keep looking for good intentions. Well, why do you criticize her so hard? Because I want to destroy her. Well, what's good about destroying her? Then she won't be on the planet anymore. What's good if she's not on the planet anymore? And I kept drilling down and drilling down and drilling down. No matter how many levels of that I did, there was no good intention. It's just, I want to destroy her. So then I had her ask this thing inside her head, which she was now visualizing quite clearly as a bloodshot eyeball that was staring at her. And this voice was, you know, saying this nasty stuff to her. And I said, just ask it if it's a part of you. And it tried to avoid the question and it wouldn't answer. And it said, well, I've been around a long time or you wish I was a part of you and and all this other blather. And then then it had her say to me, you're supposed to be a teacher. That's a really stupid question. Don't you have anything smarter to ask? (laughs) And I said, well, it may be stupid, but it's simple. Are you a part of her? And then finally it roared out, no, I'm not a part of her. I'm a much more glorious being, and I'm going to crush her like a worm. The same way I'm going to crush you. That's UB energy. And we were—I—I I knew very, very little at the time, just the basic ideas about how to move this thing out. And luckily, despite its, you know, aggressive talk, it was fairly easy to get out of her system. And I got it out and um, debriefed the group in a fairly rational way and then went to the staff meeting. And I felt really weird. I I was I had chills. And the rest of the staff were teasing me, you know, calling me Oh, Bob, the Ghostbuster. And I was getting really irritable. And that night I thought, I'm just going to pretend this never happened. You know, this is weird. It's just a one time weird thing, you know, I'm just gonna. And then after the training was over, the woman started sending me these long emails first from the airport saying I'm seeing colors I've never seen before. Now that the things out of me, I feel so good. And I'm thinking, Oh, no, did I trigger a manic episode? And then it was I can see the divine in people. And I can see light, light, I couldn't see before. And now, now I'm really, I'm really concerned. And then she sent me an email that first terrified me and then changed my life. She said, Well, Bob, I didn't tell you this. But back when I was a teenager, I tried to kill myself many times and was locked up many times. Back then, when I tried to tell people that there was something in me that wasn't me, they gave me electroshock and forced injections of powerful drugs into me. You're the first human being to ever believe me. And you've changed my life. And I went, <laughs> And I've stayed in touch with her. It's like 10, 12 years now. And she still thinks that was a life-changing experience and her life has blossomed, uh, in, in really sweet ways. And very sadly now she's terminally ill with cancer. But when she said that all it took was me recognizing it was possible there was something in her that wasn't part of her and that we could help it move along. That's all it took. And it changed her life. You know, I thought, I can't ignore
0: this. You know. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that's a, an amazingly powerful story.
2: Yeah, and, and at the time, I mean, I, I still cry a little when I talk about it, but <laughs> it was yeah. very moving to me.
0: Thank you for Yeah, I can I can feel that in my heart. <sighs>
1: slash nbn50 to get 50%
0: off. And what I know from the book is that despite the the cajoling, your decision to, to do this in the IFS community, to follow this line of inquiry, to see where this experience and then the others that, that resulted from it led, is that you became something... Of the person to whom other IFS therapists would send people when they were encountering this kind of phenomenon, can you can you tell us a little bit about? So you you have the the sample in some ways, um, yeah,
2: yeah. I think they viewed me as the trash can. You get <laughs> one of the weird ones you said <laughs> at the bottom. <laughs> but but I actually I I found this work. After I, you know, as I got used to being teased and ridiculed, (laughs) I found this work immensely exciting because you start seeing these uh, parallels everywhere or all around. And you see, you know, there have been a lot of other cases like this where it didn't take much, you know, just a recognition that this was possible and, and people had pretty big transformations. And then another area that comes up all the time is psychedelic medicine. You know, there have been conferences held on the quote DMT entities. Half the people who take high dose DMT containing psychedelics, which are ayahuasca, psilocybin and more, they meet intelligent beings. And often they totally freak out. <laughs> you know, so this is showing up in that whole other world too. But yeah, so I got I got a fair number of uh fair amount of experience. And then, you know, somebody says uh, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. So that's when I sort of went back into my more researcher mode and started putting together the history and the cross-cultural studies and, you know, all the other evidence for porosity of mind. And,
0: and all the time you were working with clients who were coming to you, and so you were having this direct experience as well.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then as, as I then I started doing supervision groups of other therapists who were running into this, and um, yeah, it just sort of grew that way.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm wondering so on your website um, if if listeners are curious, and at this point they've they've got to at least be curious. <laughs> um, there's there's a video recorded session of you working with another therapist who had had found one of these energies. And when I watched it, what I was surprised by was how tender and compassionate and gentle the entire process of of working with her was. Um, and so you said, you know, there are these historical analogs and cross-cultural analogs and, you know, the kind of thing that, that we might have here in, in America or in the West is... You know, when we think of spirit possession as exorcisms and they have their own kind of sensationalism to them. I'm wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about what it's like to be in that process or, or how you're managing it. Um, it was really moving to watch. Yeah.
2: I, I've evolved on that. The more of these I do, the gentler I get. Um, and I've learned a lot from the spiritists in Brazil. They're they're a fascinating uh, bunch of people. They do work with these kind of uh, entidades, they call them, uh, a lot. They operate over 50 psychiatric hospitals in Brazil. They've been doing this 150 years, and they they know a lot. But, of course, Western academia completely ignores them (laughs) because they're not Western academia. They say that all of these are the souls of dead people who are desperate lost and clinging to someone out of their own fear and starvation and that those beings need our help and that they actually once you once you find one as a spiritist in brazil it becomes your job to help it almost as much as help help the client in front of you and I've I've come to have great respect for the for the spiritists and their tradition.
0: Mm. It, do I remember rightly that when you describe them in the book, they're also working alongside what we would call you know recognizable medical doctors as well? Like they're integrated into the the medical system in Brazil. Somewhat.
2: I mean, there's still, of course, some hostilities, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's it's a very complicated situation. But yes, and and many uh, psychiatrists in Brazil are also spiritists. Those are not
0: mutually exclusive uh, categories. Yeah, that is fascinating. That is fascinating. Well, we we've been focusing some on, you know, the the negative. Energies and the phenomena. And this is the same way uh, to just kind of loop back to the origin of IFS. Um, Dick Schwartz describes, you know, sort of his breakthrough moment was a case that he couldn't fix, couldn't help in the suffering with the client, that it was a, a client who was self harming and he thought he had finally gotten through and then she came back with this huge gash in her face and he thought, I need I need a different model, right? I, I can't win with this. Um and so it makes sense that if your goal is to end human suffering, that that your attention would go to the suffering and why it's happening and what kinds of techniques and interventions can can heal and relieve that suffering. You've also found, however, that there's this positive side to these energies um, and entities, that that when they show up also, it's not just that they're causing inflictions, um, but that sometimes they're beneficial. And, uh, and that's one of the things that I've always been curious about when I see some of um, Dick Schwartz's things, I'm like, but if the good side of parts, you know, he always says we relieve parts of their burdens and then they go to their naturally valuable states that I always want to say, say more about that. But um, so I'm, I'm going to take this opportunity to ask you, Bob, um, can you say more about where you're finding this phenomena is of help to the people that you encounter, um, where the goal isn't so much to extract or or relieve or send this energy out of the system um, but even to invite this energy into the system through the porosity of mind mm-hmm. yeah great question
2: first thing i want to say is that dick and on ifs are explicitly a constraint release model his theory is that you don't this self this energy which is always compassionate curious fast you know he says that's always there it's never damaged you don't have to go to the gym and meditate you know for hours every day and build up your self muscle all you need to do is remove the constraints the blockages in front of it it's like uh, the sun on a stormy day when the clouds part nothing has happened to the sun and that sun is who we really are and this is a powerful, powerful message for people who suffered extreme trauma, who who, what was who were the people I focused on in my own history, you know, no, we're not damaged goods, who we basically are is undamaged. And all we need to do is get all that stuff to move back. And I think it's the same with these external energies or unattached burdens or whatever you want to call them. I don't like any of those names, by the way. <laughs> uh, if you get the bad ones, the negative ones to move back, there are good ones there. That that want to come forward and have an influence. Now, this, you know, this is a classic phenomenon found in pretty much every religion, tribal or, you know, uh, you know, the, the more worldwide ones there. There's uh, people talk to, to spirits and they get guidance. And people still have those kinds of experiences. And if you just get this stuff, you know, get the negative ones, clear a little space that tends to start showing up in people. And it can be incredibly valuable. One, one thing William James pointed out, uh, oh, God, 1904 or something, that there's something he called conversion experiences, usually in the frame of a religion, but not always. People can have an experience one day, just one day, and it totally changes the whole course of their life. Now, we as therapists ought to be studying this. I mean, isn't this what we would love to be able to do, but we can't do 99% of the time? Maybe we don't study it because it's sort of embarrassing to the profession. But any, having this kind of positive experience of uh i don't know what to call it i just use whatever language the client brings me having this kind of positive experience of some bigger wise energy contact a person often can create that kind of change so we should just make room for it and rec this has happened everywhere every culture we have records of why do why do we need to pretend this can't happen anymore now you know it's like god gang it doesn't, it's a little jarring to our ideology, but it works pragmatically. People have these big changes in their lives. And, you know, there's a lot more I could say about a really important question is how to sort out the positive energies from the negative energies, because the negative ones often pretend to be, you know, pretend they're offering valuable stuff.
0: mm Yes, I, I find my curiosity moving in multiple directions. There are parts of me that want to go everywhere. But I, I think I do want to just, um, I'm thinking again about listeners out there and, and myself. And we even in, you know, contemporary America and our contemporary Western culture, we talk about this we have a language for this model right that we we feel filled with the spirit or we feel a sense of something bigger than ourselves and you know with with IFS we feel we say things like a part of myself wants this and a part of myself wants that um so it's not as though it's not already moving around in our language and you quote at one point uh Tanya Lerman again and she just talks about a spiritual presence experience. Like I feel a presence of something spiritual and, and then you don't even have to go farther than down the block to the local church, um, to start to think about how this, how this exists. Um, I wonder if you could, I, I know we're, we're moving towards the end of the interview. Um, but the things you have to say about the, the legacy burdens are very interesting because we're definitely, I think in a moment of cultural awareness where, the past is is pressing very heavily and visibly into our present, um, you know, whether it's with the racial reckoning that's taking place here in the United States or the, the migrant crisis. Um, and so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how, how you make sense of, of that in the book.
2: Um, okay. Thank you for asking that. That's an, a very important question because... There is now overwhelming scientific evidence of epigenetics. We inherit things not only through our genes, but other ways too. We can inherit, inherit acquired experience. There's all these studies with the Holocaust survivors. Their children and grandchildren have a quite specific often syndrome of uh, effects that this legacy that got passed down to them uh, has caused. And there have been a lot of experiments with rats and mice that show that acquired experience, it can be inherited. There's a great experiment, Diaz and Wrestler, with an R, not a W, uh, that is <laughs> a really powerful example of this. And legacy burdens are an, an example, again, Something inside a person that does not come from their personal life history, that has powerful, powerful effects on who they are. And in the rat study, the Diaz and Wrestler study, the, the pups never met the, the father who was exposed to this stimulus. And they, had, they, they inherited the conditioned response, a fear response to this pleasant smell. So it somehow gets into us biologically. There are things in us that are not part of our personal life experience that can have profound effects on our psychological well being. That's legacy burdens. They're also cultural burdens, and it can often be hard to tease out what's a legacy and what's a culture. So and then I think you could think of these unattached burdens, just as the burdens that are in there don't come from our own personal lifetime, we don't know where they come from. But, you know, I I think this is such an important subject because even the most hard-nosed rationalist materialist has to go. Yeah, these things exist. We know these things exist. That much is clear.
0: Mm. Thank you. Would do you have an example that comes to mind of of a client who was dealing with a, a cultural or an ancestral burden and the kind of suffering that they were? undergoing and what the release offered them i'm just kind of imagining like what would that look like when someone walks in um, and finds you and they say here's this well how does it go
2: i'm trying to think of a good example uh one's not well here's one but it's very very strange (laughs) <laughs> oh, well. Oh, well. Wow. Uh, Working with this woman who had been a therapist most of her life, wonderful woman, did a great deal of charity work. Her mother had been, a, a, like her, an activist, done all these amazing, wonderful things, Jewish family. And uh, the mother had recently died, and this woman had chronic, terrible illness and was in a lot of pain. And she had taken to wearing her mother's wedding ring on a chain around her neck. And when she went into her inner world, she saw an image of her mother clinging to the back of her heart with claws and refusing to let go, even though both she and her mother knew this was a contributing factor to her physical illness in her inner world. So we worked, you know, had her go inside, speak to the mother's spirit or part of her that represented as her mother's spirit, whatever it was, I don't, I I go with the client's language. I don't argue with that stuff at all. And the mother said, I'm not going to let go. I don't care if it kills you. I love you, but I don't care if it kills you. Why not? And the mother sort of glanced over her shoulder and she saw the millions of Jews tortured to death in the Holocaust. She said, I'm not going there. I don't care. I don't care. (laughs) You know, um, And eventually, the the mother's spirit in the mind of this woman turned and looked. And, you know, it was very emotional for the mother's spirit, the woman, and for me. And then after doing this a few times, the mother's spirit, or the part of the woman who presented as the mother's spirit, looked up in the sky. And it saw a star-filled night sky over these millions of suffering souls. And she kept looking up and down. And then she started saying the splendor, the splendor, and there was something bigger than millions of people being tortured to death. And when she saw that the mother's spirit, let go of the woman and went on, or whatever that was, the woman experienced some physical relief for a few months after that. And she stopped wearing her mother's ring around her neck. And um, it, it it, it created in my mind a, uh, a saying that I said to the woman and seemed to help her that human suffering is infinite, but compassion is bigger.
0: Mm. Mm. That's a beautiful, beautiful note to end on. And thank you for sharing <laughs> that story.
2: Uh, i wish i'd i wish i'd had a more ordinary one so it wouldn't seem so out
0: there well i i think it gives us a great opportunity you know to, so here we are on a a podcasting network about you know serious books and serious literature of which yours is one um and i i think the spirit of Intellectual and human inquiry, as as you've demonstrated, and you demonstrated in this book, is here. Is this fascinating phenomena? Why would we not look at this, right? Why would we not go where the mystery is taking us and see what we can discover? And I think that's one of the things that I admire so much about this this work that you put together over ten years is that here here is this phenomenon. Um, I'm going to follow the trailhead to use an IFS metaphor, follow the trailhead and see where it leads. And, um, and as a result, we have this model for thinking differently and, and to come full circle, um, you've been able to use it to relieve human suffering, including the, the woman who you just described to us. So.
2: Yeah. She, I want to, you know, honest truth in advertising, she did not recover from her illnesses. They killed her, you know, a, a while later. She died from them, but she did experience some relief. And I want to say one thing that I think is super important about that case is I listen to the client's language. Whatever their metaphor, their mythologies, uh, what, whatever, the, I don't argue with their language. I don't have any need to impose any kind of ideology or worldview. Whatever they bring, I want to learn their language, not impose mine.
0: And I'll just add to that then that the, one of the things I should say about the book and should have said at the beginning um, is that the book also offers people who are doing internal family systems work guidance for how to do the kind of work you've been describing. Um That's that's the major purpose of the book, and that there are case studies in there, um, and examples and guidance, like the guidance you've just given. Um, For me, it's you know the guidance you just gave seems it seems to have much bigger ripple effects uh, along the lines of wisdom of listening to the language with which people describe their experience and seeing uh, what emerges from that. Well, Bob, thank you for talking with us today. Thank you for this work. Congratulations. Um, We appreciate you being on the New Books Network.
2: Well, thanks for having me. Been great talking with you.
0: My name is Eric LeMay, and you've been listening to an interview with Bob Falconer, author of The Others Within Us, Internal Family Systems, Porous Mind, and Spirit Possession, here on the New Books Network.